You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edre. But Yahweh said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So Yahweh our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder, so we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Senir. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salakah and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og the king of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth according to the common cubit. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jer, the Manassite, took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maakathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath-Jer, as it is to this day. To Makir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border, from Chinnereth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, Yahweh your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until Yahweh gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land that Yahweh your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, 
Your eyes have seen all that Yahweh your God has done to these two kings. So will Yahweh do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is Yahweh your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with Yahweh at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 650 of this podcast. Today is Friday, June 30th, 2023. And that was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 3. The defeat of King Og of Bashan is exciting stuff, pretty fantastic stuff. But it's also a sad passage, right? It's a sad passage. I mean, I don't feel sad for Og. I don't feel sad for the Amorites. I don't feel sad for these Rephaim, whoever they were. Bad dudes, apparently. I take God's word for it that they were bad dudes and their number was up. But I feel a sadness for Moses. Don't you? I mean, you, you come through all of this, all of this narrative building to this moment where Israel is just about to enter into the promised land. And here's Moses at the end of this chapter asking God, please, please, may I go into this land and see it? And the response from God is, no, and don't ask again, which is a very parental response. That's something you should occasionally tell your kids, by the way. When your kids are nagging you, there's a lack of respect that is being demonstrated that should be corrected. But in the case of Moses asking God here the one time, who knows? Maybe that was the only time he asked and followed up. And the response was clear and definitive. No, but you can go up on this mountain and you can look in every direction and you'll see, but you can't go into the land. You can't. And if we go back, if we remember, if we are trying to make sense of why, again, is Moses not going into the promised land? It all came down to what happened right after the death of his sister, Miriam, when God told Moses and Aaron to go and speak to the rock and the water would come out of the rock to give water for the people of Israel. God was going to do this thing supernaturally, miraculously, and Moses decided to strike the rock. Moses and Aaron, it would seem, together were at fault. Somehow, 
some way. God knows. Again, I take God at his word that God knew what was in their hearts, and there's more that we're not told that, of course, justifies God judging, God ruling, that they are not going to enter into the promised land. But it seems like such a trivial thing. It seems like that was not that big of a deal, right? Striking the rock versus speaking to the rock. And yet it makes a big difference to God whether his precise instructions are followed. When he gives precise instructions, if we innovate on those precise instructions and we want to say, oh, but did he really mean, you know, sometimes uh, striking can be kind of like speaking, right? No, no, no. God's not impressed by that. You might fool some of the people who are listening to that kind of sophistry, but no, God is not impressed and he is not deceived. And so Moses is told, no, no means no, but encourage Joshua. And I love that. I mean, there's something of a silver lining aspect to what God is pairing with the reinforcing of his ruling. When he says, Joshua will be leading this people into the promised land, encourage him, strengthen him. Well, you know what? There's something for you to do. If there would otherwise be a kind of listlessness to Moses, knowing he's not going to go into the promised land, God provides him with a gracious alternative to just waiting to die. And that alternative is an example. This should be a precedent for how older generations relate to younger generations. As they see their time approaching, they should be cultivating younger generations, the next generation of leadership, to assume the mantle of responsibility. They should be encouraging that next generation to do what is right, to be brave, to be courageous, to be bold, to be obedient. I mean, imagine you're Joshua and you're looking at Moses this larger-than-life character, even today, by billions of people around the world, Moses is revered, respected by Jews and Christians and Muslims. Moses is looked to as this larger-than-life moral example and example of courage and piety. And yet, if you're Joshua and you've seen these things unfolding in real time, you look at Moses and you have to be thinking to yourself, I had better do all that God commands me. I had better not turn aside on any little thing because Moses is not allowed. Even Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land because he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. I'd best behave. And To be honest with you, I think that's all the more reason why this had to be the penalty for Moses. Not to say there wouldn't have been a penalty if he were some anonymous layperson, but all the more rather than less because he is this example. He's being held up as an example for so many. If God is soft on his disobedience, his moment of defiance, then How much more defiant, how much more disobedient will everybody who looks to Moses as an example be? But what we see is Moses asks, please. And the answer is no. 
And then what does he do? Does he proceed to try and tear down Joshua out of bitterness? Does he proceed to try and undermine Joshua? Well, if I can't go into the promised land, then nobody should be able to go into the promised land. No, we don't see that. Instead, what we see is Moses doing what God is commanding here, which is building up his successor. And ultimately, you have to be thinking to yourself, who is Moses doing this for? He's angry with the people. He blames the people of Israel for his disobedience. The Lord was angry with me because of you. This is actually your guys' fault. And he says this a number of times. So you know it's not like a fluke. It's not a slip of the tongue. It's not a one-off. No, no. Moses is just convinced that this is the people. It's their fault that he is not going to go into the promised land. And so presumably he is not building up Joshua to be their new leader, their next leader out of only love for this people. Presumably he does care about this people, but personally I think he is building up Joshua from this point forward because he cares for Joshua and because he does genuinely love God. Imperfect. Yeah. Yeah, join the club. Moses is not sinless. He is not blameless. But that lapse with regards to the rock and the water and the striking instead of speaking, that doesn't have to be the final word or the final testimony about Moses. That doesn't have to be the final condition. Yes, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He did what he was not supposed to do. And there are consequences, absolutely. But also, contrast the relationship between Moses and Joshua here with what comes later in the biblical narrative in the Old Testament with the relationship between Saul and David. This is not that. Saul wants to kill David. It's not David's fault that the kingdom is being taken away from Saul. It's not Joshua's fault that God is telling Moses he cannot enter into the promised land. Moses understands how this all works in a way that Saul apparently doesn't later on in the history of this people, in the history of God interacting with his people. And I think that's to be commended as well. Is there sadness? Yes. Is there a bittersweet quality? Yes. They're just about to go in and possess this land. They're making war. They're fighting against enemies that are strong and well-fortified and deeply entrenched, and they have built for themselves fortified cities. And that's exciting. And that's cool. That's great. I, I'll embrace it. Some of y'all are squeamish and it makes you uncomfortable. I'm going to embrace this and say it was a good thing. It's an exciting thing. These were evil kings. These were evil people. They needed to be destroyed. How do I know that? Because God said to destroy them. But at the same time as it's exciting that this people is after five centuries near enough of being strangers in a strange land, homeless after a fashion, oppressed, slaves, nomadic. This people, after five centuries, just about are coming into their inheritance, their long-promised, long-hoped-for home, a home of their very own. But this is a multi-generational thing, and that also is instructive. We should be assessing where we're at right now nationally here in the United States, culturally 
as far as Western civilization goes, we should be assessing the prospects in a multi-generational way. Be ready if the Lord returns before any more generations come and go. But provided the world stands, provided it's God's will that the world would stand, we should know what we're about and we should know what we're doing and we should have a plan for being faithful in a multi-generational way. We should also have an expectation that God will work all things to the good for his people, tell the righteous it will go well with them. We should have an expectation that God will, in due season, cause the righteous to bear fruit and to be blessed and to have an inheritance. It may be rough for a few years. It may be rough for a few decades. If the world stands, we know that the Lord will provide for and protect his people. We know that. And so we should be thinking forward to how we raise our children, how we encourage them to seek out a wife if they're young men, seek out a husband if they're young women. We should be looking forward to someday, if we don't already, we're going to have grandchildren and we're going to have great-grandchildren, perhaps, God willing. And what will they be inheriting? What legacy will they get? What encouragement are we giving them now to prepare them for what the Lord will have them to do? Are we thinking about that or are we just sure if our chances seem dim for more happiness now, they have no hope? Well, I don't accept that. I don't accept that and you shouldn't either. Before we move on from Deuteronomy 3, though, I want to talk briefly, just ever so briefly, about how long a cubit is. So we see this reference to the bed of Og, king of Bashan, and we're told that it was nine cubits. So nine cubits probably doesn't mean anything to most of us today. Some of you out there have a rough idea of how long a cubit is, but let's go to Britannica.com. In the entry for cubit, here's what we read. To give us a sense of scale here. Cubit, unit of linear measure used by many ancient and medieval peoples. It may have originated in Egypt about 3000 BC. It thereafter became ubiquitous in the ancient world. The cubit generally taken as equal to 18 inches was based on the length of the arm from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger and was considered the equivalent of six palms or two spans In some ancient cultures, it was as long as 21 inches. And so then if we do the math, nine cubits, a conservative estimate based on 18 inches for a cubit, nine cubits comes out to 13 and a half feet. That's how big Og's bed of iron was. We also see a reference here in Deuteronomy 3 to the Rephaim. We see that elsewhere. We see elsewhere references to the Anakim. And you may wonder, and you should wonder, and you should look into this. We're not going to make a whole podcast about it this time, but I would, if there's a ask, if somebody wants that, or if somebody requests it, I will do a whole podcast episode about the Anakim and the Rephaim. But you should look into it. (laughs) You should look into it. There is an assumed familiarity, it seems, for contemporaries 
which is lost on most of us. And there are reasons, which I would get into in a fuller episode about the Anakim and the Rephaim. There are reasons why so many of us are not too familiar with them. If we read the Old Testament at all, at all, at all, in this day, very often we just skip right over, we glide right over these references to the Anakim and the Rephaim. And to be fair to a modern reader who is so separated from the context of the Old Testament, there are a lot of names of peoples that we're unfamiliar with. And there's a lot about the ancient world that when it comes to archaeology confirming or denying, if they don't find traces of something in the archaeological record independent of biblical accounts, they assume, modern archaeologists and historians assume that the Bible is not true. That's their default assumption. And then they have to be talked into it. They have to be persuaded by corroborating evidence or testimony from surrounding nations that were contemporary or that existed not long after or that existed, they believe, prior to these biblical accounts being written down. But let me just say, I I will say this much, it is very reasonable to view Og of Bashan, King Og, as a giant and to interpret and to deduce from the size of his bed and the reference to the Rephaim that he is of a peace with or in the kind that we later encounter in the story of David and Goliath. That's what sort of a character he is. That's what sort of person he is. This is also of a piece with Genesis 6-4. There were giants in the land in those days and also afterward when the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took any of them that they would for wives, and they had children with them. They had relations, and by that I mean they had sex with these women, and the produce, the offspring, were hybridized. They were giants or the heroes of old, the mighty men of renown from the ancient myths. That is a very reasonable reading and interpretation of the Old Testament references to giants and the Rephaim and the Anakim is that what these are, what what these are is not going to be a boring thing. It's not going to be, oh yeah, well, they were, maybe they were um, the equivalent of NBA players back then. No, no, no. 13 and a half feet for a bed. That's a big, big bed. And you might say, well, you know, there are other reasons why somebody might have a large bed like that. Yeah, but there's too much else that points to the Rephaim and the Anakim being some kind of a crossbreed of human women and fallen angels, rebelling angels, demoni, demons, the gods of antiquity. There's too much evidence that points to that. But again, like I said, we're not going to get into it in this episode. I just want to, while we're here, say emphatically, I reject the boring explanation here. I reject the tame explanation that wants to harmonize what godless scientists tell people and what the Bible has historically been understood to be explaining or communicating or making a passing reference to. But just like in the biblical text, these are passing references. And the big idea is not to get obsessed with giants, just like that is the general thrust of the biblical passages that pertain to them. So also as we're working our way through, We're not, unless you ask me to do an episode devoted to this topic, we're not going to camp out on 
Og being a giant at this point. I'll say, I believe he is. I believe he is a giant. I believe the reason he's a giant is because he is descended from fallen angels and human women. And yes, I do believe that that is possible. I do believe that the passages people pull on to say, oh, no, 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 you know, we'll be like the angels who are neither married nor given in marriage. Uh, That means that the angels, the created beings that are above men and below God can't have relations. And that's not what it says. That's not what it says. And there have been many, many Christians down through the last two millennia who have rejected that interpretation. They embrace the the view that actually we should be harmonizing with the ancient mythologies more so. Not harmonizing in the sense of we are worshiping other gods. No, no, that's not what's meant. That's not what's meant. Don't take it that way. Don't take it the wrong way. To say that there were real beings who were worshipped as gods and who had power and they were more than just merely human is not to say that they should have been worshipped. It's not to say we should worship them. It's not to say we should fear them either. It's to say we should be sober and vigilant for our adversary the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, which must be real things if we're going to wrestle against them. The rulers over this present darkness must really exist if we're going to wrestle against them. And no, I don't believe in the psychologized, overly philosophized, and immaterial explanation of that. Now, I don't agree that that's just talking about ideas. No, no. These are entities. They're described as entities. We should assume that that is to be taken seriously and to be believed. And so I do. For those who would say, though, coming back to the present, for those who would say there is no evidence for giants, there is no evidence for beings who are above man, below God, but above man in our day. We don't find any evidence. There's nothing to support that. Think about a post over at Not To Be from June 8th. And actually, I'll have uh, three articles I'll draw your attention to here because these are in the news. And I do want to talk about everything. And that includes these subjects. Strange light videoed falling from the sky in Las Vegas. Minutes later, a family calls police to report 10-foot-tall creatures with big, shiny eyes in their backyard. This really happened. (laughs) This really happened, Harambe, over at Not To Be, says. Now, I'm going to play some audio for you. And this is from the body camera of one of the police officers who responded to this call. And... I want you to go ahead and just listen to some of the back and forth. Listen to the audio here, knowing that this is not a spoof. This is not a hoax. Whatever your explanation is, something is going on. And so without further ado, here it is. Take a listen. Cut one. It's almost midnight on May 1st when a Las Vegas Metro police officer's body cam catches this, something flashing low in the sky. 911 emergency. Minutes later. There's a, there's like an eight-foot person beside it and another one's inside and it has big eyes and looking at us and it's still there. Someone calls 911 reporting two large figures in their backyard. Uh, I'm so nervous right now. The 8 News Now investigators obtaining another officer's video as he's sent to the Northwest Valley home. I have butterflies, bro. 
Everyone thought a shooting star, then these people say there's aliens in their backyard. By now, it's more than an hour after that bright light, officers meeting up with the caller and his family. What'd you see? It was like a... It was like a big creature. A big creature? Yeah, like a long tiny top. I'm not going to BS you guys. One of my partners said they saw something fall out of the sky too, so that's yeah. why I'm kind of curious. Did you see anything land in your backyard? Or they see like a big. That's what they say. They see like a big, uh, like a big something with light. What I saw right now, I do believe in it. Police walk into the backyard to investigate, but Metro blacked out that part of the video because it's considered private property. What's clear? They're taking this call seriously. Hey, this might sound like a really dumb question. But did you guys see anything fall out of the sky? Asking others what they yes. saw. Uh, I would normally discount it as nothing. However, um, seeing as one of my partners said they saw it too, only reason I'm actually investigating it further. That investigation turning up no concrete answers as of Wednesday. Whatever or whoever fell into that yard, long gone within minutes. Oh, hey. If those, if those nine foot beings come back, don't call us, all right? Deal with it yourself. That, I ain't dealing with that. <laughs> so, yeah, this is quite weird, Brian was saying, during as we're watching this story. Now, we've been in, been in contact with the family in that video, and as you heard in that 911 call, they seem very reasonable mm -hmm. and honestly quite scared, as you heard them in the call. No, um, it, they don't seem impaired in any way. And whatever crashed by the time the police got there was gone, but sources say that there's really no dispute. Something was in their yard exactly what we do not know. Okay, all right, now let's just... <laughs> Let's take a moment to process. Hopefully you're sitting down. This could be something. It could be that this is not a hoax. It's not made up. You can watch the video for yourself covered by the local news there in Las Vegas. And you can watch the body cam footage as whatever it is, is low in the sky. And then as they said, it comes down or crashes, and next thing you know, they're getting a call, a report from a family saying it crashed in their backyard, and these beings came out who were extraordinarily tall with big glowing eyes, looked at them, and then by the time the police show up, it sounds as though it's over. It's done with. These creatures get back in, and they fly off, or these whoever they are, you know, you might say, oh, well, maybe it was a hoax, right? Maybe this is all part of a weird government uh, R&D project to make super soldiers and top secret aircraft. But I don't know. I, I don't know about that. I think that, again, as I was saying with regards to Og, King of Bashan, I think a lot of people want to reach for the boring explanation. And there are reasons for that. I just don't find those reasons to be compelling. I think... It's entirely compatible with a biblical view of man and God and the created order to say there are creatures, there are beings that God has made that are intermediate. They are superior to man, although, here's a spoiler alert, man in Christ, the church, the saints will judge angels. That's what Paul says in his letter to Corinth. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? He says, well, angels have to exist. The world certainly exists. 
we understand the world to be the nations or those who are outside of the church, those who are outside of Christ and do not believe. The world certainly exists, so also angels must exist. And what is an angel? What is this idea of angelos? Messengers. Uh, Who are these messengers? Well, they're beings at root. They don't always deliver messages, just saying, but they have to have some kind of intelligence in in, in order to communicate. They have to have some capacity in order to be able to express and message if that's what we understand angels to typically be doing in the biblical text, in the biblical narrative, Old Testament and New Testament. They're delivering messages. They have to have information. They have to have intelligence. They have to have the ability to communicate. They have to exist in order to be able to utilize all of the above capacity. And very often we find in the biblical accounts regarding angels sent by God, we find that they have supernatural ability, which is to say they have ability that exceeds that which would be common to man. So they have more power, these angels or these beings that are sent as messengers at various times. But then they're also not always only sent to deliver messages. Think back to Balaam, for instance, and the angel of the Lord. Now, I would happen to say, I would believe that the angel of the Lord is Christ in the Old Testament. When we see that, that's pre-incarnate Christ Jesus showing up. But we see when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, God places beings he has created who are not men to guard the entrance to the garden with a fiery sword. They are not allowed, Adam and Eve, they are not allowed to re-enter Eden. They are banished. They are exiled. But God puts a guard there at the entrance to Eden, and that guard is not there to message per se. That guard is there to protect or to defend or to fight off or to threaten or to punish anybody who would try to re-enter Eden when God has said, stay out. We see also when God sends the angels to get Lot and his family out, they have the ability to blind all of the men of Sodom who have come to Lot's door demanding that they be sent out so that they can have sex with them in the street, so they can rape them in the street, which is to say the men of Sodom certainly believe they can have relations with these beings, with these creatures. But it's also to say these beings are not just messengers. They also have the ability to do something supernaturally that blinds everybody who is there to cause trouble. And so all that is to say, my whole point in bringing this up is for those Christians who would say, well, we don't read about aliens in the Bible. Yeah, but don't get distracted by a change in terminology. You know, what were we talking about in our last episode about ESG scores and how BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is saying they're abandoning that term ESG because it's become too politicized thanks to or blamed to Republicans and conservatives like Ron DeSantis. So they're going to opt for a new term. So also, whatever you want to call (laughs) what people claim to have observed, there is a category that is intermediary, that is between man made in God's image and God himself. 
And if you reject that, if you deny that, you have to work a lot, lot harder to explain the frequent occurrence of those intermediate beings in the biblical narrative, Old Testament, New Testament, peppered throughout. You're going to have to work a lot harder than I will to explain those instances and those accounts. But I personally am willing to harmonize if it turns out, if it actually comes out that there are these beings who are coming down and they're interacting and they're from elsewhere, they're from out in the broader galaxy or in a neighboring galaxy, if they're able to travel through wormholes or with spacecraft or whatever, right? Whatever you want to call that, just because we have neat and tidy naturalistic explanations for things, that doesn't mean that the biblical narrative is all of a sudden upended. Think back to Galileo, Galilei, and his heliocentric theory. Or I should say, think of the trouble that Galileo got into supporting a heliocentric view of the cosmos and how that contradicted the prevailing theory. And just because he was contradicting what had been the accepted view that the earth is the center of the universe and everything revolves around the earth, physically, his contradicting, his challenging, his getting into some rather heated debates about it led to his getting quite a lot of trouble from the status quo defenders. And yet, centuries later, five centuries later, four centuries later, we look back on that whole business and we say, there's absolutely nothing in the biblical text that's contradicted by the theory or the fact, it should be noted, that the earth revolves around the sun. The earth is not the center of our solar system. So also, this solar system is not the center of the universe. As near as we can tell, we're not at the center physically. And you can believe that, and it in no way undermines the authority or the validity or the legitimacy of the biblical account. Just because somebody was teaching something contrary as an interpretation of the biblical text, that doesn't mean that the biblical text now is less credible. And that also applies here with regards to this business about UAPs or UFOs, as they're more traditionally called. Another outlet has picked up this story or these kinds of stories here lately. Joseph Curl over at the Daily Wire published a piece, also June 8th. Congress should immediately release all info it has on intact craft of non-human origin. This is an opinion piece. This is Joseph Curl's opinion. I would also agree with Joseph Curl's opinion here, but I'll read some of it for you just so you know it's not just me. And there are serious people who think this should all be just declassified now. We want to know. We have a right to know. Not everything can be a national secret, by the way. The report was stunning, Joseph Curl writes. David Charles Grush, a decorated former combat officer in Afghanistan and a veteran of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, and the National Reconnaissance Office, declared this week that he had given Congress reams of classified information about covert U.S. government programs that he says are now in possession of an intact craft of non-human origin. Grush, 36, would know he 
was the reconnaissance office's representative to the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena UAP task force from 2019 to 2021. And then from late 2021 to July 2022, he was the NGA's co-lead for UAP analysis and its representative to the task force. The UAP expert said the information was illegally withheld from Congress and he filed a complaint alleging that he suffered illegal retaliation for his confidential disclosures, the debrief.com reported. Quote, Grush said the recoveries of partial fragments through and up to intact vehicles have been made for decades through the present day by the government, its allies, and defense contractors. Analysis has determined that the objects retrieved are of exotic origin, non-human intelligence, whether extraterrestrial or unknown origin, based on the vehicle morphologies and material science testing and the possession of unique atomic arrangements and radiological signatures, he said. The debrief reported. That was Monday. Since then, crickets. We know Congress has the info, but lawmakers aren't releasing it and no one seems to care. Of course, reports of Unidentified flying objects, UFOs, have nearly always drawn scorn. Some pilots don't report them because they'll be labeled a nutball. But in 2020, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, SSCI, sought an official report on UAP from the intelligence community. What they found was also stunning. The SSCI's preliminary assessment in June 2021 identified 144 military UAP encounters since 2004. That figure soared to more than 800 military UAP reports by early 2023. With all the reports, Congress established the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, AARO. Quote, but despite breakthroughs in government transparency about these sightings, there's one thing the Pentagon and the intelligence community have so far not addressed, and that is whether they have had any direct contact with these objects, end quote. Christopher Mellon, a research affiliate with Harvard University's Galileo Project and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, told Politico, quote, There are persistent rumors that the U.S. government recovered crash materials from UAP and even that the government has been working secretly to reverse engineer the technology, end quote, Mellon said. Mellon sets out three good points as to why the federal government should immediately release everything it has. Point one In our democracy, the American people have a right to know the truth on this matter, he says. Point two, we have a right to know, after all, we paid for it. Any recovered materials belong to the American people. Any secretive government programs that may have existed were funded by American tax dollars, and as such, any proceeds belong to the taxpayer. Point three, we're all adults here. We can handle it. Quote, although disclosure would initially frighten and shock Many people, polling data reveals that most Americans already believe we are not alone in the universe. Further, a high percentage of Americans already believe some UAP are, in fact, extraterrestrial craft. Our ancestors persevered despite profound fears of the unknown, and so can we, end quote. Now, I'll stop there. You can read the rest of the article by Joseph Curl, the rest of the opinion piece, the op-ed over at the Daily Wire. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode, but I bring it to your attention because this is not new. And for some, they've already got a category that they put these things into. And that category is crazy or else fraudulent or else too gullible, right? If you're not crazy, well, you might be a little bit, you know, too easily believing things that lack credibility. But here's a funny thing. A few years ago, when I worked out towards Briggsdale area here in 
Colorado, when we first moved to Colorado, I worked for a company that had several gas processing facilities out towards Briggsdale and Fort Morgan and Sterling, much more rural, flatland Colorado. And out in that direction, there are quite a lot of nuclear missile launch sites. There are many nuclear launch facilities wherein are housed nuclear weapons. And it was very much the talk of the area for several months. And I don't know if it's still ongoing, but for several, several months, there was a lot of talk about how strange lights kept being seen. We kept seeing, or people kept reporting, having seen strange lights flying low, not making any sound, and then as quick as they appeared, disappearing in the skies over that area. And this went on for quite some time. And there was a lot of speculation as to what is this? Are these craft, U.S. military craft? Supposedly, the government was denying that they were. Then there was the possibility, well, maybe it's some foreign power that is spying on these missile facilities and trying to get the lay of the land. That could be. And then there was the theory that, well, maybe these are advanced drones. But there's another possibility. And the other possibility is actually because of what our U.S. government is housing out there in that area in the way of nuclear weapons, interest has been piqued on the part of beings not from around here. Those beings not from around here are picking up a strange reading in their aircraft, their spacecraft. And so they're investigating. They're investigating, and we don't know what to do about it. That's another possibility. If there have been 144 military UAP encounters since 2004, that is 144 in just under 20 years. That figure was from June of 2021, so two years ago. By early this year, so give it a year and a half, the number has soared, according to Joseph Curl's reporting here, according to the SSCI's preliminary assessment, that figure has soared to more than 800 UAP reports. Well, that's quite a lot. In two years, that's quite a lot of uptick. What is that? 656? That's quite a lot. 656 in the last two years? Military encounters with unidentified aerial phenomena. We don't know what they're doing in our skies. We don't know where they come from. Now, again, as is being argued in the case for declassifying all these things, it could be that fragments or entire vehicles have been retrieved. They're being studied. It's being kept secret. The intention is not to tell the general public anytime soon or ever, if that can be accomplished. But if we're reverse engineering the technology and then incorporating it into our own technology, it could be that there's a sudden uptick because we have figured out some things from studying the aircraft we've retrieved, wherever it came from, whoever made it, wherever it came from, we've been studying it, reverse engineering it and applying the principles. And now we have some and it could be that that's the sudden uptick is we're testing it, but it's part of very, very top secret programs. 
in our government. The way our government works these days, you just never can tell. And maybe that's half the point, is we don't trust our own government to be above board here. We don't trust them to tell us the truth on this. Uh, That we know for sure. Uh, That we know. (laughs) Whatever you think about UAPs or UFOs, one thing we should all agree on is our government is not going to tell us the truth. And they're not going to even give us half the truth if they can help it until the powers that be feel like they have 100% control over what the outcome will be of the general public knowing these things. One last story on this. One last, and then we'll move on. I promise. (laughs) Matt McGregor over at the Epoch Times has a piece also talking about this same officer, David Grush, Air Force veteran, former senior intelligence officer. But from a different angle, uh, analysis, Vatican official denies whistleblower Mussolini era UAP cover-up claim. Briefly, just a, a little bit of a brief reading, and then you can go check it out on your own time more if you want to find out more. A Vatican official has denied a recent whistleblower's claim that it was involved in a cover-up of extraterrestrial craft. David Grush, a decorated Air Force veteran and former senior intelligence officer, reported to media outlets The Debrief and News Nation that classified information about the government's possession of craft of non-human origin has been illegally withheld from Congress. Grush told interviewers he handed classified information on the craft to Congress and the Intelligence Community Inspector General and filed a complaint that he has suffered retaliation since becoming a whistleblower. The publication of his statements on June 5th was followed up by a publication of more segments from the interview on June 11th, in which he claimed that Pope Pius XII back-channeled a partially intact UAP Italian dictator Benito Mussolini's regime discovered in 1933. Historically, it's been reported that Mussolini documented UAPs as demonstrated by the Italian Secret Service's internal memo showing drawings of craft, according to News Nation. It was the first documented retrieval before the next one in Roswell, New Mexico, Grush said. The Italian government moved it to a secure airbase in Italy for the rest of the fascist regime until 1944 to 1945, Grush said. It was then when Pope Pius XII informed the Americans of the craft, Grush said. Quote, we ended up scooping it, end quote, Grush said. Ross Coulthart, the investigative reporter, who was interviewing Grush for News Nation, said, quote, let me be very clear about this. You're saying that the Catholic Church, the Vatican, they know about the existence of non-human intelligence on this planet? To which Grush responded, certainly. The Epoch Times contacted the Vatican for comment. In response, Marco Grilli, the secretary of the Prefecture for the Vatican Apostolic Archives, told the Epoch Times that the Monsignor Prefect, quote, directed me to inform you that no mention of that topic of your interest is contained in the archival funds of this Vatican Apostolic Archives, end quote. Now, before we move on, right, before we move on, let me just say lack of evidence is not evidence of lack or the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. For another thing too, it is interesting to think about the advances in rocketry, in the design of aircraft, which have taken place, which have been possible over the last century. It is interesting to note that a lot of advances were made in our space program. 
after the defeat of the Nazis in World War II and the bringing of Nazi scientists, German scientists, who had been working for the Nazis, I should say, to America. Operation Paperclip, that's a real thing. It happened. We know that we got technology from those German scientists that we didn't otherwise have. We also know that there were huge advances made in our development of aircraft that we use today, which we know about, the public knows about. We know that there were huge advances made in our ability to go into space and survive a trip into space and a trip back in the last 60 years, the last 70 years, thanks to the work of these scientists. It's plausible to my way of thinking. This doesn't mean that it is the final word on the thing, but it's at least plausible that many of these advances were due to the retrieval of advanced aircraft that weren't from around here. Then just as the previous articles I was talking about explained, reverse engineering and as much as we could figure out by studying and replicating the technology that we had retrieved or that our government or the government of Italy or the government of Germany had retrieved as much as could be figured out as we are figuring out more and more how these things are made, we're then developing our own fighter aircraft. We're developing our own commercial aircraft. We're developing our own spacecraft in a kind of imitation. Now, it could also be that some people just can't believe that people are capable of doing these things on their own. But going back to a longstanding and very common way of reading some odd passages in the biblical narrative, it's for a long time been held by many Christians that what got these peoples that were in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, what got them into so much trouble with God is that they were mixing it up with fallen angels, with demoni. They were giving rise to a hybridized race that ultimately was to be at war with the plans and purposes and promises of God. You know, what was God's original plan and design? To make man in his image after his likeness, to bless them and tell them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What was the original curse on the serpent? That the seed of the woman would crush his head or would crush sin and death. And you can take that metaphorically. You could say that's all symbolic. But if we believe that the serpent was the devil, if we believe that the serpent was a real being made by God, well then, the seed of the serpent is also real. And what does that pretend? What does that mean? What does that translate to? If you're looking at the whole business with the children of Israel being brought into the promised land, what does that mean when they're being told to kill everything, even the animals in some cases, but not in all cases, but the men, the women, and the children in the most disturbing cases, the most concerning cases? What does that translate into in terms of our understanding of what's going on there if we say, well, they're all just people, right? They're just human beings, and this is only moral and philosophical and religious. That's all it is. Versus if you say, no, there's more going on. There's more going on than meets the eye. And oh, by the way, just briefly, you've got the book of Enoch 
quoted, referenced in the book of Jude, in the New Testament, the book of Enoch, has never been considered canon, and that's okay, that's fine. But the fact that it's quoted, the fact that it's referenced, means something. And if you read the book of Enoch, the backstory on God sending the flood in the first place is that these fallen angels who had rebelled, who had left their proper domain, who had sought strange flesh, that is, women, they were teaching humanity things that humanity was not supposed to know, at least from them. Think of the Tower of Babel and how God said, if they do this, nothing will be impossible for them. And so what does God do? He confuses the language. Now, there's another interpretation that is they were getting all bunched up in cities, in the city, in that case, instead of spreading out, filling the earth and subduing it, being fruitful and multiplying, they were, instead of that, congregating in a city and working on some kind of a major vanity project, a moonshot, if you will, so to speak, but a tower that would reach to heaven, the Tower of Babel. We might be taking that too literally as being just a tower. What if the tower that's supposed to reach to heaven is actually some way of getting out into space and exploring the cosmos and colonizing other planets? And God didn't want them doing that under the leadership and the guidance and the direction of fallen angels, under the direction and guidance of daemoni. Again, you can dismiss that. You can say, I I don't put any stock in that whatsoever, that that's why God sent the flood. But it's there, right? That's a, a contending theory for how you harmonize these various things, these various passages in the biblical text and also accounts in the broader ancient world and even up to the present with regards to UAPs and UFOs. That could be a reason why these things are kept from the public because there's more going on than just the material technology being studied and examined. It could be that there's more going on. And oh, by the way, even if it's just just technology, and let's just suppose that all these UAPs that are being reported as encountered by our military are legit or any of them, if any of them are legit, and they are aircraft from a non-human origin, from out in the broader universe, come here to investigate or dabble or interfere with our activities or study us. If some of those craft are in possession of intelligence agencies or super secret, top secret departments of our military or our government, and those departments are developing or reverse engineering or fine-tuning these technologies, that argument about these things rightfully belonging to the taxpayers, that is not a small thing. I mean, how would it be if you and I as taxpayers gave some bureaucrat a ridiculous amount of our money collectively, and then that bureaucrat went on an expedition to, oh, I don't know, uh, Antarctica. And while in Antarctica, that bureaucrat were to find some long-lost civilization with mountains of gold in some vault, and then that bureaucrat said, oh, for national security interests, we're going to keep this secret. But also, it just so happens, I'm going to take this gold home, and I'll keep it at my house where it'll be safe. And then, you know, I might every now and then spend some of it 
to do what I want to do and to fund my little pet projects. And of course, that's also for, you know, national security. That's for the good of the people that they don't know about that. What would we say about that? Hypothetically, right? Hypothetically, we would say, that sounds pretty corrupt. And that sounds like a recipe for some bureaucrat becoming oddly, unusually wealthy, powerful, and influential, and then potentially running roughshod over the very taxpayers who funded his expedition, his exploratory mission to that distant land. Now, let me just suggest for you the possibility that intelligence agencies, if they have more info than they're letting on, if they have access to better technology than they're letting on, and they gained access to that technology using our tax dollars, or they've been researching and reverse engineering and then replicating that technology with our tax dollars, but then they're using that technology the way that they use so much of their bureaucratic power that we know about increasingly. Well, let me just suggest that I don't want to be uh, at their mercy (laughs) Uh, with whatever they develop. I don't want the deck being stacked in favor of some unaccountable uh, intelligence agency and its bureaucracy at at the mercy of whatever their scruples are, whatever their ethical limitations are. I don't want to be at the mercy of their scruples. I want to know what do they have? Where did they get it? And if it is fantastic, well, are they hoarding it? Are they hoarding it and using it to build extraordinarily successful corporations perhaps? that then make them even more money, right? They make all this money off of technology being developed that they have the inside track on, all the while claiming it's for the greater good, but really it's just selfishness. It's a very classic, very old-fashioned, very unexciting selfishness and greed on their part. Uh, You know, there was a story I brought to your attention here several months ago about a father and son who believed that they had found some long lost civil war era treasure buried out in the hills and one of the States out East and how they reported it to the authorities. And they said, Hey, we might have a pretty significant find here. And they claimed, and then they filed suit accordingly. They claimed that the U S government came in and dug through the night and then The next day, there was nothing. There was a big hole in the ground and, oh no, we didn't find anything. Well, but what if you did, right? What if you did? And that's the suspicion on the part of this father and son that actually, yeah, you did find a whole bunch of gold or what have you. And now you guys have secreted it away and it really should have been ours or we should have gotten a finder's fee or something. You know, that kind of thing is plausible. And if it were to happen that, authority and power were abused. And that's part of the reason why these things are kept secret is because a whole lot of people have become very, very wealthy because they had the inside track on the development of technologies coming from this. I'm just saying, I'm just saying it wouldn't be the biggest shock in the world. It just wouldn't. It wouldn't to me. It's not to say it doesn't mean that I'm going to hold my breath or quit my day job and study UAP full-time. But if you want to know my honest opinion, that's a plausible reason why our government would keep it secret because 
actually quite a lot in modern life has been developed from studying craft not from around here and implementing the findings. Doing so under the guise of participating in the free market. But then what do we find with members of Congress and senators and various others? They are happy to make trades or signal their family and their friends to make trades on the stock market using insider information. They know they're just about to legislate something that will impact this industry or this corporation. Buy now or sell now, and they become very wealthy. Would it be shocking if all of those same fundamentals are at play in the discovery of UAP technology, non-human origin technology? And it wouldn't surprise me at all. Switching gears, though, if you hate all this talk about UAPs and UFOs, here we go. We'll talk about something else. <laughs> For now, anyway. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee posted yesterday, National Geographic is firing all of its staff writers and will no longer appear in print on newsstands beginning next year. After more than 130 years of being the premier science and nature magazine in the world and one of the most iconic magazine brands of all time, National Geographic is essentially going the way of the dodo bird after a few years of wokeness. A sad moment, Shashank Joshi tweets out, quote, on Wednesday, the Washington-based magazine National Geographic that has surveyed science and the natural world for 135 years laid off all of its last remaining staff writers, end quote, had 12 million subscribers at peak in the 1980s. Now, let me just say, let me just say uh, a brief word about Disney purchasing National Geographic in 2019. Disney needs to go. National Geographic, I grew up with. I have always loved National Geographic magazine. If I find myself at a doctor's office or waiting to get my tires replaced on my truck or get my oil changed, or if I find myself out and about someplace and I see an issue on the stand, National Geographic is the magazine I want to pick up and I want to read and I want to look at the photos and I want to see the stories and I want to see the captions. But unfortunately, here in the last four years or so, yeah, they got super woke. We tried to subscribe again and then it was just weird, right? It was weird promotion of stuff that it's not even subtle anymore. You know, it used to be growing up, National Geographic was a magazine that would bring you stories about the latest finds archaeological, or what wildlife biologists were observing about various animals, or some new species of sea life that had just been found and was being studied, and what we knew about its behaviors and how its anatomy worked differently than other creatures that were somewhat related. It used to be that National Geographic was the magazine you would go to to feel like you were traveling the world. You were traveling through space and time and really getting a better idea of the world that you live in. And then they decided, with help from Disney, I'm sure, they decided that they wanted to be highly politicized for the left, for progressive causes, and to promote that stuff. Everything is activism. There isn't journalism anymore these days in the mainstream. Journalism is primarily handled by small conservative outlets 
and independence. But the big names like National Geographic have in the last, what, 10 to 20 years, really ratcheted up wanting to push climate change hysteria and gender theory and critical race theory and social justice because the people going to work for them are coming from schools where that's what they're being taught. The people going to work for them don't want to upset or offend the corporate sponsors who have decided this is what they're going to do. They're going to push wokeness. It's a sad, sad thing to see National Geographic die like this. Hopefully, we have more and more outlets that are willing to do that kind of a thing. Answers in Genesis should pick up the slack. Take the market share that has been lost by National Geographic and do something God-honoring that is very similar. Explore the world and help us to make sense of these things in light of a belief that God's word is true. That would be great. I would love to see that. And don't make it super preachy. Allow it to be a thing where, hey, you're looking through these very beautiful, very high quality photographs of people all over the world and places that are exciting and interesting and thought-provoking. And if it's a quick blurb, a quick article here and there, and then some longer articles throughout in each issue, great, right? That's great. But this is highly unfortunate. And this is part of the reason why I am skeptical of mainstream science because of being able to watch in real time, month after month, year after year, the degradation of National Geographic magazine and Discover magazine and the Smithsonian magazine, all of which I grew up reading, popular science, popular mechanics as well, watching in real time the degradation of these institutions as they became increasingly just properties of the left to brainwash intellectuals around the world in leftism. This is part of the reason why I want to talk about everything. I want to study these things not just in depth on any one subject, but broadly, because we have to be able to make connections where the people who were supposed to be, who said that that's what they were going to be doing, have given up on it. We have to be able to make connections so that we have a good understanding of how our world works and our place in it and what we could be doing. We want to enjoy and appreciate the beauty and wonder of God's creation, but we also want to know how to avail ourselves of the opportunities that there are. We want to be able to spot opportunities. We want to be able to spot threats. We want to have keen, understanding, knowledgeable decisions coming out of our encountering of either or, both and. So pour one out for National Geographic. It's sad to see, but then not surprising. Not surprising given that Disney bought them in 2019. Along similar lines, Candace Hathaway has a piece up just yesterday. She published this just yesterday over at theblaze.com. American Library Association Conference promotes LGBT books for kids, features diversity panels, and trans key speakers. We won't spend a lot of time on this. I just bring it to your attention because like enjoying National Geographic growing up, like growing up with Discover Magazine and Popular Science, Popular Mechanics, and Smithsonian Magazine. I also grew up loving my local libraries. I grew up going to the local public library 
because I loved browsing the books. I loved finding something interesting and thought-provoking to take home with me and to study. I loved it. This business with American public libraries pushing the transing of kids, promoting the propaganda that has so many young people becoming homosexuals and bisexuals and transgendered and queer. This business is a tragedy. It's a travesty. It's awful. This is a kind of death works that the libraries are being hijacked by the radical left. They don't have to burn books. All they have to do is give garbage books to young people and to insist, to insist that if you want your child to have access to libraries, you are going to have to put up with your child being confronted with rainbow celebration, pride month, affirming sexual deviance, sexual immorality. It's an awful, ugly, offensive thing. This is sexual harassment and it's molestation and it's no more innocent for being widespread. It is collective madness. This is insanity. So many people are on board with this for no other reason than that they're terrified of the equivalent of the Salem witch trials happening to them. They're terrified of being the next one singled out for destruction, like Mao's cultural revolution did on a grand scale. There are so many people who are going along with this because they care nothing so much about anything as they do their own neck, their own skin, their own livelihood. They're terrified of having to explain and justify themselves in why they would be uncomfortable with these things, why they would be opposed to these things. They don't know what they believe. They don't know why they believe it. All they really believe in is keeping their job and maintaining a certain respectability in the community that allows them to fly under the radar. Don't go trusting the people in the white lab coats uncritically. Don't go trusting the people in the expensive suits on TV uncritically. Don't go trusting the people with the shiny magazine covers at the local newsstand uncritically. Don't go trusting your local librarians uncritically or your public school teachers. They have become instruments of radical leftist indoctrination. They have become instruments of the cultural revolution. And it is that. It is a revolution. The conservative should recognize and insist that this is not the way that reality works. Because the consequences, the consequences of not standing up to it are every bit as dramatic and severe and then some compared with what happened in China when Mao took over. The destruction of people, mind, body, and soul publicly for all to see is what these people are capable of. And the masses are also capable of going right along with it out of sheer bloody panic that they will be the next one singled out for destruction. And it is not okay. It is not acceptable. It's not no big deal. And it's not just going to blow over if you quietly go about your business. This is your business, actually. LGBTQ books, molesting and grooming children in our public libraries is absolutely your business. And what I'm not interested in, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, I'm not interested, first and foremost, primarily in banning books. 
but my interest would be in removing people from positions of authority over these institutions who want to put books showing and describing in graphic terms gay sex and transgenderism to young people. I absolutely want to see the people who are making the decisions in these institutions fired. And in some cases, I want to see them behind bars because what they are doing is evil. It's evil. What they're willing to do to parents in particular who talk back to them, who object, who question them, it's evil. And it needs to be regarded as evil. This isn't a left-right thing. This is a right and wrong thing. This is a good and evil thing. Jesus says it would be better that a millstone would be tied around a man's neck and he'd be thrown into the depths of the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble or to sin or to disbelieve in Jesus. So when that is what Jesus says, almost nothing is too good when it comes to dealing with the people who are trying to molest children, who are trying to normalize the sexualization of children. Almost no penalty is too good for them because ultimately they deserve to be put to death for corrupting minors. They deserve to be put to death for wanting to molest and rape children. They deserve that. And the people who are promoting it and normalizing it and who want to hate you very publicly and destroy you are participating in a Marxist cultural revolution. This is not a new thing. This is not novel. It's not original. This is what the Marxists have done. This is what they have done in Russia and in China and in every place where they've implemented communism. Frederick Bastiat in the law would call what they're trying to do when they're abiding by the laws legal plunder. But then this is different. This is qualitatively different what they're doing with the libraries and the public schools and children's programming in movies and TV shows and in the music. It's different. It's spiritual. It's demonic. And it needs to be confronted as demonic. There is an exorcism that is needed with regards to these public school libraries and these public schools and these public libraries generally. There's an exorcism needed. It's not about the books first and foremost. It's about the people who are promoting these things. It's about the kinds of people who think a pride display and a onesie that's promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, queerness for infants being displayed at the front of the Target store, those kinds of people, those people need to be exercised from positions of power and authority in our society because what they're ushering in is full-fledged neo-paganism. What they're ushering in is probably going to make all of the business that we read about in Deuteronomy 3 make sense in a brand new light. When they are demanding access to your children, when they are demanding to fiddle with your child's identity, their conception of self, their conception of biology, their conception of their own sexuality, when they're demanding the right to take your child away from you and cause your child to undergo gender reassignment surgery, when they're demanding at root the the ability, the freedom to mutilate your child's sexual organs as part of their new pagan religion, 
and when they also similarly demand the freedom to murder unborn children, I say we are a hop, skip, and a jump away from their demanding the right as they see it, the freedom as they call it, to offer up your children as burnt offerings to false gods, to pagan gods, to the old gods of Mesopotamia on live television. We are a hop, skip, and a jump away from that being the thing where they say, oh, well, this this young person doesn't want to live anymore, and so we're going to have a ceremony, a demonic Satan-worshipping ceremony, wherein we assist this child's suicide and we offer this child up as a sacrifice. I say that, and some of you might be rolling your eyes and you might be like, oh, that's absurd, that's ridiculous. Things that were being predicted as the next iteration and the next logically consistent thing 10 years ago are now normal. So when I say what I'm saying now, you need to recognize this has been done. This is old hat. This is exactly what God warned the people of Israel as they were coming in to possess Canaan. He warned them to completely drive out the people God had said to drive out. And that if they didn't, those people would lure the people of Israel Those foreign nations would lure the people of Israel into their worship of these demons. And what did God say? He said, do not offer your children to me in the fire like the nations I'm driving out before you do their children. And then you fast forward and what was happening? Exactly that. Sacrificing of children to demons, to false gods. It happens just like we read about in the Old Testament, and it's happened throughout history. If you demand that religious liberty is an absolute, at a certain point, the radical left will be so consumed with hatred for conservatives and Christians that they would even, before your very eyes, imitate the old Aztec Mexica human sacrifices on a pyramid to the corn god just to make you upset, just to anger you. Because actually, really, it's not you, conservative, it's not you, Christian, that they ultimately hate. It's the God whose blessings you want to preserve that they hate and they want to make war on. They want to make war on him and they want to aggravate him and they want to taunt him because they are at war with him. And so, yeah, they hate us. Yeah, absolutely. They hate Christians because ultimately they hate Christ. And they hate Christ because... They love their sin and they love darkness and they love these demons and they love what is satanic because these demons and these devils tell them they can do whatever they want and call it love. And then meanwhile, we're here saying, no, we actually love you and you're destroying yourself right now. Repent, repent, confess, repent, turn away. You need Jesus. And they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that, and they definitely don't want us telling them no, just like the men of Sodom were incensed at Lot telling them, don't do this thing. They were ready to kill him too, for daring, for having the temerity to tell them no. Ooh, boy, howdy, you better not have just told me no. How dare you tell me no? The radical left in America right now today is exactly like the men of Sodom. It is. And similarly, The fate will be the same apart from repentance and a turning away. And you best be standing back when judgment comes from God, because it's coming. In the meantime, we have to know what to make sense of 
an article like this one by Courtney Wheel over at The Blaze. Daycare worker accused of snapping photos of nearly naked children and sending them to trans-identifying former state rep in New Hampshire. A former daycare worker who lives in New Hampshire, but who worked in Massachusetts, has been arrested and charged after she allegedly snapped photographs of children's exposed genitals and then sent those images to a former intimate partner. Lindsay Groves, 38, of Hudson, New Hampshire, had been working at the Creative Minds Early Learning Center in Tingsboro, Massachusetts, when she allegedly committed heinous acts against children believed to be between the ages of three and five. According to a press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office of the District of Massachusetts, Groves took advantage of, quote, natural bathroom breaks for the children, end quote, including diaper or pull-up changes before nap time to take pictures of children's genitals. The criminal complaint indicates that Groves approached the victims while their pants and undergarments were pulled down. She allegedly asked the victims to pull their shirts over their faces to obscure their identities. She then took photographs of their nearly naked bodies. In at least one instance, she also, quote, placed her left hand adjacent to the penis of one of the victims, the complaint stated. The victims included three boys and one girl. Groves first began capturing the images in May 2022, and the most recent images were captured earlier this month, reports said. Court's documents further allege that Groves did not take the images for herself alone, but instead took them at the behest of former Democratic Surprise, surprise. New Hampshire State Representative Stacy Lawton, 39. Lawton, who was formerly known as Barry Charles Lawton Jr., is a biological male who claims to be transgender. Most media reports used female pronouns in reference to him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Theblaze.com for not using preferred pronouns and telling the truth. This is a man who has decided He wants to be a woman. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to demand that I call you a woman or madam, not when you're a man. And if you want to make something of it, well, then let's go. But you started it. This is what I'm talking about. When I say we need to homeschool our kids, it's this that is being done psychologically, intellectually, emotionally on a national scale, and the radical left has demanded it. This is a cultural revolution, and they're using the sexualization of children. They're using the molestation of children to advance their agenda. How do I mean that? I mean, it's a loyalty test. It's a loyalty test for radical left policies, and it's a way of destroying even the most fundamental, even the most basic idea of anyone or anything belonging to a private person. As Frederick Bastiat says in the law, socialists feel threatened by any talk of liberty. Socialists see any talk of rights, individual rights, property rights, religious rights, the freedom of speech, the freedom of association, they see any talk of that as threatening because what they ultimately want is to convince you that nothing belongs to you so that they can take anything they want from you and give it to whoever else they want or just keep it for themselves. Of course, of course, this is a Democrat congressman who is receiving these images. Why was he receiving these images? Because apparently 
He's into this kind of a thing. Of course, Pride Month displays were at the front of the store at Target because queer theorists from the beginning, according to Professor Derek Jensen, queer theorists from the beginning said in their literature, in their philosophical musings, that abolishing the distinction between adults and adolescents was consistent with queer theory. Of course, this childcare worker is sharing these images with a transgendered man. Of course. But now what are we going to do about it? And you can say, well, I don't live in Massachusetts. I don't live in New Hampshire. I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about this. You know, what are, what are you calling for, Garrett? Are you calling for us to all storm the jail, drag these people out and put them to death vigilante style? No, that's not what I'm calling for. What I'm saying is the narrative is demanding that this be normalized and that this be what happens nationwide, coast to coast. I think part of the reason for that is because some very wealthy, very powerful people in positions of high office or leadership over corporations, either high up in political parties or in our government or in academic institutions. This is what they do behind closed doors. This is what they have been doing for years and even decades. And they want it to be normalized before it gets out in the public. They want it to be normalized so that they don't go to jail, so that they don't get executed So they want to normalize it by institutionalizing it. And then if there's a bonus effect of being able to go after anybody who tells them no, being able to take those people's children away very publicly, if there's a bonus effect in being able to go after their political enemies, the ones who would be the most threatening to them and who would be most likely to bring accountability to them, well, great. If at the end of the day, It means the total abolition of private property, as well as the bonds between parents and their children, or between husbands and wives being dissolved to where there's nobody who stands between them and a would-be victim, a would-be prey, all the better. But this is evil. It's evil, and we have to call it evil. And you can't hide behind not wanting to be tribal. Oh, by the way, What were we talking about in our last episode, going through the first two books of Deuteronomy? What were we talking about in the episode before that, where we talked about the last chapter of Numbers? God is not opposed to tribes. In fact, he affirms the idea of tribes within Israel when the heads of father's houses of a particular tribe ask a follow-up question about the implications of the daughters of Zelophehad marrying men outside of their tribe, and then their land that they have been given permission to inherit because they have no brothers, their father had no sons. If that land all of a sudden goes to their husband, who is of another tribe, well, then what? There was no lecture from Moses or from God about how we should all be less tribal. None of it. No, no. No, on the contrary. God upheld the notion that these tribes have a legitimate claim to keeping their territory. Yes, these young women should be able to marry whom they will, but it should be within their own tribe. And if they want to marry outside of their tribe, well, then they forfeit the inheritance of the land that would have been their father Zelophehad's in Canaan, in what will be 
Israel as they take possession of it. But if you see a story like this about a child care worker abusing children, molesting children, sending child pornography to a former state rep who is transgendered, you see a story like this, you shouldn't be thinking first, oh, let's not get into Republican versus Democrat. Let's not get into conservative versus progressive versus liberal versus socialist. I don't, I don't want to talk about Marxism. That's upsetting. There's enough upsetting stuff in the world. No, no. What you need to know is you have a responsibility to protect children, especially yours, but also other people's children from being abused like this. You have a responsibility to speak up and to say something and to do something. If you have kids and you have kids who are being potentially molested or abused or raped by sick, twisted, evil, corrupt people at a daycare or at the local public school or at the local community center because they're demanding, they're demanding everybody kiss the ring, bend the knee and pass the loyalty test, get your kids out of there. If you can't get that person removed and there's not enough support to have that person removed and their influence exercised from the institution, get your kids out of there. Homeschool your kids, whatever it costs. It can't cost more than your child's soul or your soul. For our last story, though, we're going to talk about a post at Not To Be from just today. Mr. Retrops, not his real name, I trust. PETA releases disturbing image of animals eating babies. What is wrong with these people? Here we have a cartoon, an illustration, tweeted out by PETA with the caption, if you're uncomfortable seeing yourself on their plates, it should feel weird to have them on yours. We have a rooster and a cow and a pig with a table set before them and babies, various parts, legs, torsos, in one case, front and center, an entire baby lying dead on a plate. This is paganism. This is demonic. This is not just a disagreement that we have. No, no. It's not just, I don't like it. It's not just, it makes me uncomfortable. No, this is evil. It's evil to collapse the distinction between man created in God's image and, on the other hand, animals God said we could eat. God said we could eat them. He blessed Noah and his sons and gave them every animal to have as their food after they got off the ark, after the great flood. Later on, we have God telling Peter in the book of Acts, arise, kill, and eat. As a sheet has descended from heaven with every kind of animal, God says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's objection is, Lord, I've never eaten any unclean thing. And God's response is, do not call unclean anything that God has declared clean. So Peter here, not only are they declaring unclean what God has declared clean in the eating of animals, but they are going to go another step farther. And like I said earlier in this episode, we are just a hop, skip, and a jump away from these pagans offering up children as human sacrifices to their demon gods on live television or live streaming over the internet just to make you and I, as Christians and as conservatives, angry, just to assert dominance, just to show us who's going to tell who no. 
we're a hop, skip, and a jump away from it. When this kind of imagery can be put forward, put out there for the full public viewing, and they do this with the approval of their own consciences, which are seared to shock us, what do you think is beyond them? What exactly do you think their limits are? Maybe we haven't found them yet. In fact, I would say, given what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes about there being no new thing under the sun, we haven't found their limits yet. If we're not prepared to call them to repentance now because we're worried about what they might do to us, give it a few years. Don't call for repentance. Give it a few years and see what is possible. How is it that you think various tribes of mostly naked savages mutilating their bodies, dressed up in paint more than clothes, living in jungles, and eating visitors from faraway lands? How is it that you think that they came to develop a taste for human flesh? The Mexica, for instance, for example, when the conquistadors encountered them, the Mexica, the Aztecs, didn't just offer up human sacrifices by the thousands on their pyramids in what is now Mexico City. They also, after cutting hearts from beating chests, would throw the bodies down the steps where they would be gathered and collected by the priests and the priests' families and then processed. And then the priests and the families of the priests would eat the human sacrifices. Not for no reason did the conquistadors say, this needs to stop. These people, this civilization, this culture needs to fall, needs to be destroyed. Not for no reason. And actually, when that's the context and you're only ever told about the conquistadors and how awful and evil these white Europeans, these white European Christians were, that they made war on, the Aztecs or anybody else, when that is only one side of the story that you're presented with and any of the claims about what was being done by the Mexica are dismissed as, ah, that's just propaganda. That's just white Europeans lying about the natives again. No, 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 no. The Greeks offered human sacrifices. Actually, there are plenty of Greek stories about vengeance being wreaked on somebody by killing their children and serving them their own children as a meal. You don't think that happened? You don't think that is a thing? There are plenty of myths that deal with that, but there are plenty of passing references in the Roman histories and the Greek histories to human sacrifices. The Norse and their pagan worship of Odin and Freyr and Thor and the rest, the Norse made a regular practice of offering human sacrifices. We are a hop, skip, and a jump away from this flirtation with neo-paganism turning into out-and-out human sacrifice. Lab-grown meat, by the way, being touted as an alternative, a more humane alternative to eating farm-raised animals. Lab-grown meat, did you know how they're getting the cells to replicate in a lab environment, they're using precancerous and cancerous cells to make the meat. Mmm, yum. Delicious, right? No. No, that's disgusting. That's abominable. Maybe, as in the days of Noah, so shall the last days be, 
is giving us something of an idea of why God sent a flood to destroy all life on earth except what was on the ark. Maybe we're getting something of an idea of the kinds of things that were being done under demonic influence just prior to God sending the flood, dissolving the distinction between man and animal every way we can possibly think to, telling anybody who objects, how dare you? Who appointed you a judge over us? We'll do worse to you than we would have done to them. That kind of filling the earth with violence is what we're seeing the radical left not just suggest, they've been suggesting it for years and decades, now they're demanding it. And they don't want to just do it here, they want to do it on a global scale. And we know that because what are they touting? They're touting climate change as the existential crisis, as the thing that is the moral imperative. That's their apocalypse. That's their Armageddon. That's their eschatology, that burning fossil fuels, having babies, raising your kids to love Jesus and get married in turn when their time comes, that's what destroys the world. No, 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 actually, you've got it backwards. But, you know, of course you would have it backwards because you're listening to demons. You're under the influence of the demonic. Of course you would have it backwards. Of course you would. But no, no, that's not correct. And of course I say that and they'll hate me for that too. But I see this image. I see this image. And if you've got the stomach, go check it out from PETA. It's not a new thing that they would present these kinds of shocking images and try to get you to be thinking about man as meat so that you'll stop eating animals as meat. But then who knows, right? Who's to say what all directions that kind of propaganda will go? What all directions might some individual who is intrepid and pioneering take that kind of propaganda for a quote unquote protest. Are they going to kill and eat somebody in a public place? Well, then I say we're right back to the Mexica. We're right back to tribes of naked savages slaughtering sailors who've come ashore because they shipwrecked, slaughtering them, putting them in a cauldron and soups up. We're a hop, skip and a jump from that. And it would be just like these radical leftists who hate Christianity and they hate Christians to say that's the come full circle on communism, on Marxism. I'm sure this rubs some people the wrong way, but I'm with Richard Wormbrand. I think Marx was possessed by the devil himself. I think he was writing a kind of satanic Bible in the Communist Manifesto. He was fascinated with Satan. I think he sold his soul to the devil and it's not for no reason. The communists consistently again and again, throughout their dark and sordid history to this point, the communists make a special effort to destroy Christians and Christianity. Why is that? Because that's what their whole system of thought, that's what their whole worldview, their whole religion of communism was invented to do. God says, thou shalt not steal. And the Marxist says, thou shalt not make any private claim to property, or to persons. Parent to child, how dare you? How dare you refer to that as your child? That boy, that girl is not your child. That boy, that girl is the community's child. And then we get Hillary Clinton writing the book, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. No, it doesn't. This is the first chapter of my book, and this is why we homeschool. It actually doesn't take a village to raise a child. It takes a mom and a dad. 
no, this is not the community's husband, the community's wife. No, this is that man's wife we're talking about. No, this isn't the community's house. This is that man's house. It's not the people's house. No, it's that man's house. This is where that man lives with his family. His family, in some sense, belongs to him, and he, in turn, belongs to his family. That's how God set it up. And the Marxist says, ooh, I hate that. Oh, I hate that so bad. I want to destroy it. You can hear the thunder. A storm is coming and a storm is here. And we need to know what we're about as we go into it. But I got to run. I really do. More to come. I know I said we might be getting into, in defense of culture war, an article over at the post-liberal order, but we just didn't have the time to in this episode. So we will hopefully, maybe, Lord willing, get into that in our next episode. But for now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.